you would open up your Bibles to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5 is going to be on page 549 on the, the Bible in the, in the uh, seat back in front of you. Please feel free to, if, if you need a Bible or if you know a friend who needs a Bible, we, we have those there for you to take with you. And uh, we would love for you take one of those. We are continuing our sermon series through this incredible book, really this incredible letter to the church in Rome 2,000 years ago. In chapters 1 through 4, what we've talked about is Paul's been making the case that in order to be in a right relationship with God, we can't earn it. But because someone else did, we can trust him. So in other words, you can be saved either by your works or the works of another person. And that person is Jesus. And now what what Paul's going to be talking about in Romans 5 through 8 is saying, okay, now that you have a right relationship with God, what are the effects of that? How how does your life begin to, to change or how do you understand your your life a little differently now that you're in a right relationship with God. Tonight we're going to be in we're going to be in Romans 5, 1 through 11. Therefore since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him We have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Knowing that suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character. And character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, one of the hardest things to do in life is to endure suffering. We know that even your children, the saved ones, the believers, we suffer. Father, that is often when we're asking the question of why, why me, why now, why this? We can't answer every question for the secret things belong to you, but there are things that you have revealed. 
And so, Father, we're asking that tonight you would reveal those things that would help us grow in all of life and godliness. Father, some, some of us here in this room are in the midst of a really difficult season. Some of us have had difficult seasons. Some of us will have difficult seasons. But all of us will suffer. But would you help us to see what happens in Jesus Christ because we're saved? So, Lord, would you meet us? Would you speak with us? And may we hear from you. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. There was a man who was born into extreme poverty. And his family was forced out of their home when he was only seven years old. His mom died when he was nine. He never finished grade school and never went to high school or college. At 23, he started a business but failed. He tried politics but lost. He lost his job. At age 24, he borrowed money for a business but failed. At 26, he got engaged, but his fiancée died before the wedding. At 27, he had a nervous breakdown so bad that it kept him doing nothing for six months. At 29, he tried politics again and lost for the state legislature. He ran again and finally won, and then he ran again for Congress but lost. He ended up suffering depression. At age 37, he ran for Congress and won, but didn't run again and was rejected for the job that he wanted instead. At age 45, he ran for Senate and lost again. At age 47, he tried to be vice president and lost. Two years later, he ran for Senate again and lost. But finally at the age of 51... Abraham Lincoln became president. What made Abraham Lincoln a great president was not merely his positions or his gifts, but it was his character. You see, if Lincoln interpreted his suffering as just a sign for him just to wallow in despair, do you think he... He would have become the man and the president that he became. You see, everything depends on this. You see, we're, we are all going to suffer in this life. The question is this how do you interpret your suffering? That's the question. How do you interpret what's going on? You see, it is true that there is a difference for the believer and the unbeliever. We will all suffer and we might suffer the exact same thing, but God is going to use that suffering in one way for a believer and in another way for an unbeliever. And so really what this text boils down to is this, is that throughout everything you hear tonight, the single question is this, do you have the Lord Jesus Christ? And if you have the Lord Jesus Christ, then it'll change the way you interpret your suffering. Look at verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. One of the questions we want to ask is, when we enter into a period of suffering, is this, is this God's wrath or is this God's redemption? How do we interpret our suffering? Well, in verse 1 here, we, we see that 
We have peace with God. Paul says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, what does that mean? Just as a review, to be justified means that we're in a right relationship with God. In God's heavenly court, where all mankind will eventually be judged. If you're a believer, then the last judgment day, the verdict of that day has already been given to you. And it means that you are now righteous. That's what it means. That's what it means to be justified. It means you and God are good. Your sins are forgiven. The righteousness of Christ has been given to you. And it's not because you earned it. It's merely because you trusted Jesus who earned it for you. That's what it means to be justified. But notice that it says this. It says, since we have been justified, not since we justified ourselves. You see that, right? The emphasis there is that Paul is saying this is what happens to you, not something you earn. But he says, since we've been justified by faith, it says we have currently, we have peace with God. Peace means harmony. Peace means that there's no more disputes. It means absence of war. And here's one thing when you think about in light of today, sometimes when we think of that you and someone else are at peace, it kind of means that, well, you're not best friends, but it's fine. You're, you're not button heads anymore, but, you know, you're just going to let bygones be bygones. That's not what this means. When the Bible says that we have peace with God, it means we have a positive relationship with God. Because here's the thing. You can never be neutral with God. You are either God's friend or you are God's enemy. That's what it means, the word peace means. In other words, it's actually the, the word picture of war. Actually, here's an interesting story that might paint the picture for this. On Christmas Eve in 1914, during the middle of World War I, a remarkable thing happened, as one article says. At about 10 p.m., a soldier noticed a noise. He writes, I listened, he recalled. Away across the field, among the dark shadows beyond, I could hear the murmur of voices. He turned to a fellow soldier in the trench with him and said, Do you hear the Germans kicking up that racket over there? Yes, came the reply. They've been at it for some time. The Germans were singing Christmas carols. It was Christmas Eve. In the darkness, some of the British soldiers began to sing back. And suddenly, as this guy writes, suddenly... We heard a confused shouting from the other side. We all stopped to listen. The shout came again. The voice was from one of the German soldiers, an enemy soldier. He was speaking in English and he was saying, come over here. That sounds like a trap. And so one of the British, British sergeants said, you come halfway. I come halfway. So the enemy soldiers began to climb out of the trenches and to meet in the barbed wire filled, what's called no man's land. You see, it was actually in no man's land when it was not peaceful. That's where the bullets would fly. That's where the dead bodies would be. But now, instead, there were handshakes. There were words of kindness. There was exchanging, it says, of, of songs and tobacco and wine and 
joining in spontaneous holiday party in the cold night. And here's what the soldier says. Listen, this is crazy. Here they were, talking about the Germans, the actual practical soldiers of the German army, and there was not an atom of hate on either side. That is wild to think about, especially because they frankly went later on back to their trenches and shot each other. That, sorry, that's spoiler alert. It was World War I. But it does show you something there of a temporary peace in war where there's no more hatred. And that's the way this Greek word is used is that if you are a believer, you and God are no longer enemies. But there's something very important there is that unlike that illustration, once you come into peace with God, God never goes back to war with you. Even when you run away from God, God will not run away from you. Now, here is something we also need to remember is this. It is not that we just treated God as our enemy, but we were God's enemies. You see, this text actually shows us this, is that what it means to be a Christian is not, well, you just stir up the faith that's already in your heart and you just say yes to God. Because even if you wanted God, you were God's enemy. You see, that's why the Father sent the Son, is to reconcile us to the Father. Because not only was God our enemy, we were God's enemy. But now, there's peace. Now, as the article says, there's not an atom of hate of Him for us. You see, this is Through the Lord Jesus Christ. Now here's why this is so important. Here's how it connects to suffering. We have peace through Jesus Christ. How? Because Jesus took the wrath of God so that we don't have to. Jesus took our hell so that he could give us his heaven. How does that that apply to suffering? Here's what it means. When you're going through a time of trial, tribulation, and suffering, if you're a believer, that is not God's wrath. It can't be God's wrath because God's wrath was sufficiently poured out on Jesus so that you don't have to take it. The Bible is very clear on this. It is not as if Jesus suffers a lot, but God still needs to make you suffer, and then you're in a right relationship with God. No, no, no. Jesus took all of God's wrath. So when you go through a period of suffering, don't interpret it, dear believer. Don't interpret that as if God is still wrathful towards you. It's hugely important. You see, when going through suffering in this life, we must remember we have peace with God. Unfortunately, in life, our conscience will often still accuse us. And some of you know, many of us know what that feels like. But how does the peace of God grow? Now, here's one thing I want you to hear. This text is not, notice that it says we have peace with God. That's a difference between peace of God. Peace with God means If I was going to use Grant in this, if me and Grant are at peace with each other, the relationship's good. 
But then out of that knowledge that he and I are at peace, then internally I will have peace. That's the peace of God. So when I have peace with God, that assures me on my heart, and then I grow in the internal rest and peace. Does that make sense? There's peace with God, and then there's peace of God. This one right here says we have peace with God, but that fuels the peace of God. That's important because this, you can never lose peace with God, especially, and this is very important, especially when you don't feel like you are at peace with God. Did you hear that? Remember, your emotions do not always tell you the true story. Once you have become a believer, you always have peace with God, especially when you don't feel it. But the more we trust that we have peace with God, the more we grow in the peace of God. This is what it means for you, especially in suffering. If you want to grow in having the peace of God, you need to trust that God loves you. You need to trust that God really is for you. Often doubting God's Love for us is actually what leads to spiritual anxiety. But it also means this. Another way to grow in the peace of God is by looking more at what Jesus has done, not what I need to do. Now, it is important that I respond to the gospel, but my faith and my focus is not primarily on what I need to do. It is on what Jesus has done. My faith is always on him, and inevitably, I will live the way God calls me to live. You see, one of the things that drives us into times of anxiety and the way we interpret suffering wrongly is that we think, I need to be doing more to earn God's favor. God must be giving me this period of suffering right now because I'm not doing good enough. My friends, that is always a bad trap. Because God's suffering, I mean, whenever God allows you to go through suffering, it is not his wrath. He's looking at you in light of Jesus. Now, because we have peace with God, it also means this. Look at verse 2. These first two verses set up everything else. Because we have peace with God, we are also friends with God. Through him... We have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. What does this mean? It means that we have friendship with God because we are justified by God's grace. We have friendship with him. Friends have access to each other. Frankly, this friends have each other's numbers. Friends As you know, sometimes friends just barge into each other's houses, even sometimes when you're not there and you're in class. Friends have access to each other, and that's what Paul's saying here. See, through him, talking about Jesus, we have obtained access. You see, when we go through suffering in life, we must always remember that we are friends with God. But it says in verse 2, That this friendship with God is through Jesus Christ. I remember 
when back in 2014, when I was playing with the Patriots and we were practicing at the Washington Redskins or the formerly known as Washington Redskins. And we were in Virginia and at these practices during fall camp, we, it was before you played the preseason game, you would go and practice against the team you would play later that week. It was kind of cool. Well, there were 60,000 fans at this practice. And as I'm walking off the field, I somehow get in a conversation with Bill Belichick, who's the head coach of the Patriots. And as we're walking out of uh, off the field into the locker room, I see my dad, who is along the, the ropes that are keeping all the people back. And there are security guards to make sure no one rushes the field. So in other words, no one has access onto the field. But then all of a sudden, as me and, and Coach Belichick are walking off the field, he says, is that your dad? I say, yes. And he looks at my dad and he waves him onto the field while people think that he is all of a sudden maybe a potential I don't know, streaker or something, who's going to run across the practice field and disturb everything. It was hilarious. He kind of pulls up the road and walks out and looks around and is like, okay. You see, my dad had access to the field because of someone else. You see, we have access to the Father because of someone else, Jesus Christ. It says that we have also obtained this access. That's actually very important that you can't always see in the English. It's not saying that there's some secret knowledge out there, but just in our English translation of this, we can't always see the riches of what's there. When it says that we have also obtained, it means this. It means that This happened at one point in history. And that moment of history affects us the rest of our lives. That's what it means. This is what it means in the full translation of this. This is not a one-time introduction to God. That Jesus just says, hey, do you want to meet my father? This is your one and only shot. But then after that, you're on your own. That's not what the text means. When it says we have obtained access to the Father, it means that from now on, we always have access to the Father. Amen? Now that is so important when you think about your suffering. Here's why. Because inevitably, whenever you sin, and whenever you go through a period of suffering, do you not have thoughts where you say, well, maybe God doesn't love me anymore? Right? Maybe this is the last straw. Maybe because I finally fell back into that sin, he's done with me. Or maybe because all this is happening in my life, maybe God's forgotten about me and I'm no longer his child. That's often what we think. But brothers and sisters, I'm telling you, right here in the text, it says you always have access to God. Amen? It's amazing. Actually, this word for access is so incredible because it specifically means access in that word was a picture that only a friend, a political friend, could take. An enemy could not take that path of access where you'd be killed. So when it says 
We, dear believers, no matter how sinful we are, we have obtained access to God through Jesus Christ. It means this. You are God's friend. Amen? You see, this is what Jesus has done. He brings us to the Father. And because He does that, we always have access to the Father. That's why Paul says we stand in this. It's a... It's a fixed position. So this is so huge when you think about suffering in your life. That the things that God has brought in your life or that he's allowed in your life, it is not his wrath. It can't be. Because Jesus took the wrath of God. Now that is, that's much easier to say and to think, but it's hard to believe, isn't it? And that's why we've got to keep coming back to Scripture. That's why we got to help each other keep coming back to Scripture to say it's not God's wrath, but in a strange way, he's working his redemption. That's how we interpret our suffering. Not only do we have peace with God, but we are friends with God. And because we have peace with God and because we are friends with God, it means that we're safe with God. Look at verse 3. Not only that. But we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. We are safe with God. Isn't that that just an amazing thought there? You are are safe. We have assurance that even when suffering comes into our life, that God will keep us safe. This is what's so crazy, is that actually God will use suffering to sanctify you. There's actually a cactus that blooms flowers, if that's the right language, blossoms flowers in the winter. And that's actually what the Christian life is often like. As one author put it, God's grace grows best in winter. Suffering, Paul says, produces endurance. Endurance, character, character, hope. Paul says it is suffering. It can really mean any type of suffering. It can mean the suffering of persecution from People persecuting us because we're believers? My friends, let me remind us all, do not be surprised that it is hard to live in college as a believer. Do not be surprised, because Jesus told us. Don't be surprised that it is hard to live in this world, in this day and age, as a believer. Do not be surprised that when you come across things on Netflix or on social media or Snapchat or whatever it is, that it clashes with a biblical worldview. Do not be surprised. Paul is saying that not just suffering of a persecution type, but this word's actually also used for physical suffering. And so really I think we can say that any of our suffering can be included in this promise. And now that suffering, here's what's so important. That suffering God uses to produce endurance. 
When he says produce, it means to fulfill a task, to accomplish something. What's so funny is that in the midst of suffering, we think and feel like it's doing the opposite, right? You think and feel like this is going to destroy you or this is going to ruin your future or this is going to ruin your relationships. You're never going to be able to get over your past or these consequences for the things that you've done. You'll never be able to see the light of day or because of this physical uh, illness, you're never going to be able to be what you wanted to be. But actually, God says that he uses suffering in the life of the believer to produce endurance. What is endurance? Here's what it's not. It's not bitterness. Let me say a word of gentle rebuke here. Brothers and sisters, if you are holding on to things of the past and just living, growing in bitterness, that is the opposite of what the Bible talks about that the hope of the Christian is. Just to be simmering over those things that people have done to you or the things that you've done or whatever it might be. And you're just continually replaying those things over and over and over and saying, essentially, this is all my life is and my life is ruined because of that. That's the opposite of what the gospel gives us. Endurance is this. Endurance is learning that in the midst of suffering, my grip of this world loosens and my grip of heaven tightens. Suffering teaches me this. This is not the only life. That I am looking to heaven for the world to come. And even the things that happen in this life, no matter how painful they might be, and I'm, lear- I'm learning this, but no matter how painful they might be, I'm learning That God is greater than any of my sin and any of my suffering. Amen? That endurance that God uses produces character. I think I've used this illustration to some of y'all in private or maybe in some of my Bible studies. But one of my really good, me and Grace's really good friends, a former student two churches ago, she had said, we were meeting with her at a Starbucks in Montgomery and she had said that she had met this new guy and thinking that he was really awesome. And now we knew this person really well. So it'll maybe, maybe not. It'll make sense of why I said this. But the first question I said was, have you ever seen him suffer? Now that sounded really, really interesting. And who knows what people walking, walking away said, like, what? Um, that sounds horrible. But here's what I meant there. You really understand someone's character through suffering. Because inevitably you're going to suffer in life. And it's very easy when things are easy. It's very comfortable when things are comfortable. But when you want to really see someone's character, see what happens when they suffer. But what God's doing in suffering is that as he produces endurance, that endurance is producing Character. My friends, God knows how to make you more godly when you go through suffering. It's the strangest thing. But God knows the exact things you need in your life 
in the season of your life that you need them, around the people and the job or the school or wherever you have, all your life circumstances, he knows exactly what you need when you need them to do all things to bring you safely home. See, Paul says that this character produces hope. Hope in the glory of God. What does that mean when it says the glory of God? It actually is thinking about God's radiant glory in heaven. Remember in Isaiah 6, Isaiah sees the throne room of God. He sees Yahweh sitting on the throne. The angels around the heavenly throne are saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole world is filled with His glory. God is holy in His Glory radiates through heaven and earth. When it says that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, character produces hope in the glory of God, it's hope in heaven. Because here's what's going to happen, and Paul will talk about this in Romans 8, and it'll be amazing, is that one day heaven will transform this earth and the glory of God will be everywhere. The glory of God and the holy of holies in the heavenly temple will now be everywhere. And suffering, it gives you tunnel vision to remember that. That's what it does. Paul saying, look, dear believer, when you go through periods of suffering and when it's hard, but when you continually look to Jesus and when you continually hope in heaven, you will not be let down. You won't. You don't see it yet. We live by faith. We don't live by sight. But sight is coming. And one day, actually, as it says in 1 John, one day when the glory of the Lord appears, we will see Him, and in that moment we will be like Him. Amen? So what? For one, once again, your suffering does not mean the wrath of God. It can't mean the wrath of God. It means God's redemptive reversal. My friends, what you need to know if you're a believer, you will never experience God's wrath. Not now, not later, not ever. Amen? Ever. So don't interpret it that way. God has... He knows all your sin, your past sin, your present sin, your future sin. He knows all your weaknesses. He knows all your shortcomings. He took all those things into consideration when he sent his son to be a sufficient sacrifice. The father in his infinite high standard has said, my son is good enough for you. If the father says that about us, why do we disagree with him by saying, Well, I don't know. Maybe I need to beat myself up more. If God accepts us in Jesus Christ, then we need to rest in what he says. Not, well, I just need to accept myself because that's never going to work. You're always going to be let down. But rather, I trust what he says. That's faith. You see, I remember when I was playing sports and... One of the common sayings was, you know when a coach, I, specifically at the Patriots, I remember hearing 
Uh, guys like Matthew Slater say this, you know that you're about to get cut whenever a coach stops talking to you. Because then the coach is done trying to coach you. But isn't that often what suffering feels like? It feels like God's not talking to us anymore. But that's not what God's done. He's not cutting you. Because God truly cut his son, cut off his son on the cross. And that was enough for him. You see, I love the story. I've probably told this story so many times to you all, but it's so good. The missionary John Patton ministering to the cannibals in the New Hebrides Islands. And there was one night where these cannibals, yes, cannibals, uh, as he was trying to preach the gospel to them, they wanted to kill him and eat him. And so they chased him up into a tree. Listen to this. He, he, he wrote down his experience there. I climbed into the tree and was left there alone in the bush. The hours The hours I spent there, all before me, as if it were but of yesterday, I heard the frequent shooting of muskets and the yells of the savages. Yet, I sat there among the branches as safe in the arms of Jesus. Never, listen to this, never in all my sorrows did my Lord draw nearer to me and speak more soothingly to me Then when the moonlight flickered through those leaves and the night air played on my throbbing brow as I told all my heart to Jesus. Notice that he's saying he felt more the presence of God there in that suffering. He goes on, listen, alone, yet not alone. If, If it be to the glory of my God, I will not begrudge to spend many nights alone in that tree again to feel again my Savior's spiritual presence. And to enjoy his consoling fellowship. Then all of a sudden in his, in his journal, then he speaks to the reader. If you, if you ever find yourself being thrown back upon your soul. If you ever find yourself being alone, all alone. In the very embrace of death itself. He asks you a question. Do you have a friend that will not fail you then? That's the question. And that's what you can have in Jesus. That's what the gospel is saying right here, that you can have this in Jesus. But what's the, what's the surety of this? This is the whole point of verses 6 through 11. Paul is saying this. Here's when Jesus Christ died for you. Look at verse 6. He died for you when you were weak. Look at the end of verse 6. He died for you when you were ungodly. Look at verse 8. He died for you when you were still a sinner. Look at verse 10. He died for you when you were an enemy. So, weak, ungodly, sinner, and an enemy. That's not a very good resume. I don't know if you knew that. Here's what Paul's trying to tell you. If Jesus died for you then then do you think that now, all of a sudden, God's going to say, well, Nicola, it's time to be reckoned again. No, that would be crazy. Brothers and sisters, let me tell you this. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, God will sooner put his son back on the cross than he will pour out his wrath on you again. Amen? 
That's what that means. Paul is saying that, you see, now when, when he died for us, when we were the furthest off, if he reconciled us to him then, then we'll never experience God's wrath now, later, or ever. You see, because on the cross, Jesus died, as it says in verse 6, for the ungodly. As I had mentioned, what happened on the cross? Jesus took your hell to give you his heaven. That's what happened. Here's what this means. Here's some implications for all this. What does repentance look like? One way in which we repent is by changing the way we think about life. It's what we call worldview. How I see the world. It's like watching a 3D movie and you won't be able to watch that movie rightly unless you have the right set of glasses. Your life is like that. You're not going to be able to interpret your life rightly unless you have the right glasses, as it were. And the Bible is those glasses. What it means is we must repent of thinking that God is still wrathful towards us. That's actually part of your repentance. So in in other words, we actually kind of need to stop telling ourselves just to pity ourselves and saying, well, woe is me because maybe God's wrath is upon me. Because it's not. We also need to repent of the idea that somehow God's going to take away his love for me because I sinned again. He's not. Jesus is enough. You see, we need to understand that God can even use my worst and hardest suffering for his glory and my good. Even the thing that you've spent these many years trying to forget. That God, even in those very moments, at your worst sin or the worst sin that's been done to you, That God knows how to use that for your sanctification. My friends, God is undefeated. And there is nothing in your life that can ever mess up his plan for you. Amen? Isn't that an incredible salvation? Your whole life will be upended. Your whole life will be transformed. You're not always going to see it all. But God will use all things of your sin and your suffering for his glory and your good. Amen? That's how we need to interpret our suffering. Robert O'Neill, who was a Navy SEAL, when he went through the, the entry phase, it's called BUDS, the entry phase to try to become a Navy SEAL. It was like the Navy SEAL trials, as it were. He had one of his instructors who would be helping his group of people to, if they were able to make it, to make it all the way to the end. Here's what he said about his instructor. He called him Instructor A. Instructor A was someone who used to encourage their class of people. And through that intense eight-month training, they often got a lot of very discouraging instructors who would just, frankly, physically torment them to see who could become a Navy SEAL. But one time instructor A spoke to them and he said this, I'm never going to ask you to do anything impossible, but I will make you do something very hard. And after that, I'm going to make you do something very hard again, followed by something very hard day after day after day for eight straight months. 
And that sounds like a lot to get up from to get from now to eight months from now. But don't think about it that way. That's not the way you achieve a long term goal. Get up in the morning, make your bed, brush your teeth, little victories, get to five o'clock PT and finish that. Get from PT to breakfast, from breakfast to lunch, from lunch, make it to dinner. After dinner, get back to your room, into that bed that you made that morning and do the same thing all over again. All you need to do to get from now to eight months from now and graduate is just don't do this one thing. No matter what, never quit. Life is going, to make you, is going to make you want to quit. And your suffering will do that. But my friends, if you are a believer, you can know this. That it's not merely God giving you a pep talk like that saying, just don't quit. It's God saying, I'm not going to let you quit. And even when your most horrible, worst moment comes around, I got you. And you can know for a fact that if you believe in Jesus Christ, you will make it all the way home. Isn't that amazing? Believe that and you will be saved. Let's pray. Our Father, we ask that you would help us because life is hard. And there's so many things in our suffering and our sin. We, we often we don't feel like you love us. Father, you say right here in your word that you do. Would you assure us of that? And would you help us to interpret life that, like that? And would you help us to help each other? Lord, we thank you. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.